really feels like changes in the air and that we might get all of these things, these nudges across the, it's not even going to be like systemic change. It's going to be nudges that we might finally be able to pass. I mean, I'm really pumped because they're redefining also what it potentially means to say an infrastructure bill can do. I mean, the fact that they're starting to talk about zoning reform as a part of making sure we get the most out of our infrastructure is just really exciting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the ways these packages can be really exciting. They take a lot of bills and a lot of ideas that have maybe been sitting on the shelf for a while, bills that get introduced in one Congress and no action happens. They get introduced in the second Congress and no action happens. And now with a democratic administration and Democrats in control of Congress, some of those bills can actually make it to the floor and you know potentially into this bill. So let's get into the nitty gritty. What are like the top, I don't know, five or 10 things that you think we should be most excited about that are individual proposals in this uh, amazing package? Okay, so the Biden administration has targeted affordable housing as like a major plank of this investment. And they've outlined about $213 billion in their target for spending for this bill. And that includes a lot of different bills and includes a lot of ideas. But they kind of fall into about five buckets, if you will. So one is simple production of affordable housing. They want to spend to produce, preserve, retrofit more than a million affordable housing units. And that's through a big mix of tax credits, grants, and expanded rental assistance. So that's one bucket there. So is this the first time that people are really taking seriously the idea that affordable housing is infrastructure? I mean, this is something we've been talking about, but I'm just, I don't know that I've seen it put into practice. Like, people talking about affordable housing is infrastructure. It feels like rhetorically, that's such a huge win. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really meaningful distinction in a, a couple of different ways. You know, there's like the top level messaging that affordable housing is infrastructure. So we're kind of thinking of it in a different way, or, or Democrats are thinking of it in a different way than they traditionally do. In the past, you know, both Republican and Democratic administrations have targeted housing usually just through budgeting. And in recent years, these big omnibus must-pass budget bills will include all of the housing goals, you know, that whatever administration wants to put forward. This is the first time it's really been discussed kind of separately outside of that big budgeting process, at least as far back as, as I can remember. But it's also different in another way in that a lot of the action is actually coming through the Treasury Department and not through HUD. And I think that is partly a reflection of some of the bills that will come together, which we'll talk about. And, you know, these bills have bipartisan backing in in, in a, a lot of them have bipartisan backing. And a lot of them really see the action coming through Treasury instead of through HUD. That doesn't mean that HUD has no place in this bill, but it's just another way that this is different than past efforts at affordable housing. All right. So what's our second bucket? 
Okay, second bucket. That is a special bill called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. This was kind of a surprise for me that this was going to make it in, but it is it it, it means building and rehabbing about 500,000 homes for low and middle income people. There's a lot of things to to dive into with this bill. It's kind of it's really interesting one, but it's about investing in neighborhoods in housing in neighborhoods where there is some distress where the cost of say buying and renovating a house is less than the sale cost of the house so these are places where the private market just really won't invest in housing and that's in both urban areas and rural areas so this particular bill has bipartisan support and would do a lot for flagging areas in legacy cities, but also in rural areas. So it's a really broad purview. And 500,000, I think, is the floor for the number of homes that this could potentially, you know, mean investment and upgrades. So that's the second bucket. All right, bring on the third bucket. Okay. Third bucket is the one that I think is going to be particularly exciting for the group of people joining us tonight. And that's what I like to call the Yimby Bucks program. It is a competitive grant program that will award funds to cities, counties, states, tribes, and regions that commit to eliminating exclusionary zoning. This is... There, there you go. And all the Yimbies applaud. This is an old idea. It was something that HUD kicked around during the Obama administration, kind of at the tail end of the Obama administration. It didn't go very far during the Trump administration. And Senator Amy Klobuchar has kind of revived it as a standalone bill. And it looks like this bill will be part of the housing as infrastructure portion of Biden's infrastructure push. And this is really, if if we're understanding this correctly, this is a um carrot this is not what other you know proposals have been it's a little bit more of a stick there have been other proposals to say if you don't reduce these exclusionary policies we will maybe not give you community development block grants and other things like that this is the carrot to say if you're eliminating exclusionary zoning then you can get these other grants yeah that's right laura you're referring to senator cory booker's bill which would restrict community development block grants which are very desirable for cities or counties that that can't show that they're eliminating these barriers to new housing the that that bill could very much wind up as part of the biden infrastructure package well what critics point out about that kind of particular approach the stick approach is that a lot of communities that are wealthy and have, you know, these exclusionary barriers can just go without community development block grounds. Now, cities really like these these funds because you can sort of do whatever you want with them, you know, within within reason, they're really, really flexible. So restricting that is going to be something that a lot of cities really want to avoid. What Senator Klobuchar is proposing is, yeah, as you say, something more like a carrot. Although, you know, some of the, the bill's backers will say it's not, not quite a carrot because, well, for reasons. I think, I, think, I think a carrot is a good way to put it. This is a totally new level of funding, and it's for something that, that's difficult for cities to do. 
I mean, we're talking about planning grants just for cities to really tackle, to really look at how they're struggling, where they are in their housing production, dealing with equity, legacies of racism, inherent in zoning systems. All that requires lawyers. All that requires historians. It requires community leaders who can field out what people think and what people are saying in neighborhoods. It's, it's an expensive enterprise to, to just figure out what's going wrong and how to fix it. And that's what this third bucket of spending would do. It would, it would produce these grants that local governments, counties, regions, states, tribes, even even potentially groups of states, I think, like can can get together and apply for these grants to to both produce real planning and also implement those plans once they've got them in place. So you could see this playing out just in radically different ways all uh, across the country and having a potentially big impact maybe not immediately, but, but down the road. And I'm wondering, so the, it seems like the expenses, right? The grants, they're really going to pay for the planning staff or whoever time to look at these policies. It's not quite tipping into a a full carrot. It seems like as an incentive to say, please actively do this stuff. It's more just making it closer to cost neutral to for cities that are deciding to actively um, combat the history of racist zoning and deciding that they really want to eliminate single-family homing, this is just makes it a little bit less expensive to go through the process of eliminating single-family home only zoning. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, you raised kind of one of the points that Up for Growth Action would say if you know if they were on the call right now. I think is that it's not like giving you money if you produce. X results. It's just making that process feasible for cities who are maybe not really so far down the road with this. And, you know, this could be implemented a lot of ways. There's a mayor of a a small town in Texas who I talk with on Twitter. And, you know, he was saying, you know, we don't have a NIMBY problem in Stamford, Texas. We just don't have developers. We, we really have a problem actually creating value. So this is something that he was interested in for his city in just creating housing where the private market just really isn't generating new housing. So it's it interesting, could... though, like on the other side, there are a lot of wealthy cities that spend a lot of planners hours like you. There are cities who are quote unquote trying to figure out how to build more housing and like they create a lot of studies and analysis that are all circling around them actually avoiding building housing and not actually wanting to have a solution to these. I mean, I do, I worry about like how much is like the like Palo Alto planners are going to like get a grant to study the fact that Palo Alto doesn't want to build housing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that actually fulfilling this legislation is going to need to go into some detail about this. I mean, the text of of the bill as it currently stands is like, you actually need to have a plan to to allow housing to be built. And, you know, you can't, I think, like pull a fast one 
and get this money and pay your planners to say that new housing would change the character of our community and we shouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't think that it's going to be that kind of tool, but that is just going to mean that they're going to have to get kind of specific. And at the same time, I think they want to retain some flexibility because they do really want it to be, Senator Klobuchar wants it to be a tool for rural communities as much as it might be a tool for California cities. And I think that once communities can pass that good faith test and, and say, we really do want to do this, like these are really actually our goals, then they'll have a lot of leeway in how they implement or how they spend these funds to create plans. And if they, you know, this is a five-year, as it's designed in the in the bill, this is a five-year program. So theoretically, you could get the bill for creating a plan, and then you could get an implement implementation grant for actually fulfilling the plan, which is something that requires more lawyers and different community organizations, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, even just planting the flag out there that like part of our infrastructure plan is that places have to be eliminated. I, the rhetorical victory there just seems so powerful. Like the the fact that Tucker Carlson is losing his mind, like that's just great. Well, it's really kind of wild uh, to me that that Tucker Carlson is lo losing his mind, like. This is a uh, $3 trillion bill or a $3 trillion package. And the, the these Yimby bucks, we're, we're talking about $1.5 So it's like an actual drop of, in the bucket of the overall sp spending package. And it's just for planning purposes. I suppose that Tucker Carlson still believes that this sensitivity to the suburbs about being canceled or whatever that they believe suburbs believe about what happens if you're allowed to build slightly more densely in the suburbs is like still a po winning political issue for them. I'm not sure that really played out in Trump's push for re-election, but I think we are going to hear a lot about the Yimby Bucks program to come. Which is just really exciting for all of us. I mean, it's putting the arguments that we've been having in a few key cities and towns and states, you know, just like more and more, it's this big national conversation about how is zoning holding us back as a nation. And this is something that Jerusalem Demsis has been talking a lot about of like, how do we tee up part of the conversation around, we're going to build back our communities and investing in sort of economic growth and seeing zoning as part of holding people back. If we're talking about investing in infrastructure and rural and suburban communities, that they're going to have more stable and more economically vibrant communities when they liberalize their zoning laws and talking about that as like infrastructure and building stronger communities. I just think there's a lot of rhetorical power there that I think the Biden administration is very actively and, and Klobuchar is like actively going all in on that rhetoric that I think is going to be really powerful. Yeah, you know, I think Jerusalem's story kind of framed it as, as suing the suburbs. And I think that in the, you know, part of this bill really is going to go to litigation, I imagine, when you're talking about coming up with these zoning plans. I think it also fits in 
to something that she, she wrote about in her article and something that I've been writing about from the Obama years forward about fair housing. And that is the re-implementation of the affirmatively furthering fair housing um, policy. And I think that this competitive grant program really kind of fits in and interlocks with affirmatively furthering fair housing, just with fair housing in general. When that you know program was first implemented in 2015, when HUD really built out this this plan for doing that, you know, some communities said that it was onerous. I think more communities, among the very very few communities that actually complained about it, just said that it was really difficult to do because it was something that the local housing department needed to fill out this fair housing assessment. And you need a lot of input to do that. You need input from the health department. You need in, input from the transit department, transportation, because all of these things are so interconnected, as you know. And, and, and city governments are not often as interconnected as they need to be to tackle a program like this. So you could imagine this program for giving local governments the ability to come up with plans as kind of like a, a key for, for the lock of, of fair housing as a way to kind of like unlock implementing the fair housing mandate once the Biden administration really kind of reintroduces that mandate as an explicit policy. So I think this is a, a way of setting the groundwork for, for big fair housing changes to come. It's interesting. So in California, as part of the housing element process, the state has told local governments that they have to affirmatively further fair housing through the zoning updates that they're doing in this what's called arena cycle. Everybody's updating their zoning. And every city and town across California is supposed to be doing affirmatively furthering fair housing through their local housing element. That's the their zoning of their... There's technicalities, but the only important part is every city is supposed to be saying, look, here exactly is how we are affirmatively furthering fair housing. And the state isn't giving a lot of guidance on like, what is that? And so the cities are just doing all kinds of crazy stuff right now that they're just putting under the title heading affirmatively furthering fair housing. Like some of them are just saying like, we're going to allow ADUs, which is what the state is already, we're going to enforce state law and allow accessory dwelling units. And that's believe, that will be how we affirmatively further fair housing, which is just like a joke. It does not affirmatively further fair housing. But this kind of grab bag of methodologies might actually provide, you know, actually some useful uh, content for maybe federal, like what does it mean to apply a metrics-based something more rigorous to what is affirmatively furthering fair housing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, making states and local governments the laboratories of democracy <laughs> that, um, you know, actually sort of figure out on the ground what this is going to mean by the time the Biden administration, if and when they actually formulate a federal policy. Yeah, it would be nice if there were actually some examples of local governments kind of kind of doing that. New York City has done it. California is doing it to varying extents. Boston is doing this. You know, as I understand it, in California, everybody's upzoning. Isn't that right? I mean, what's going to be really fun is that this housing element process means that we're just going to get this cascade of 
people upzoning of all kinds, but especially through the lens of every city and town has to accommodate bigger housing goals. This is the the big, the sixth cycle. It's going to be a big deal. They have to affirmatively further fair housing. They have to build a metric fuck ton of more housing. That's the technical term. And they're going to have to do it all within a, a, a constraint that's now set by the state that's going to mean you, you actually have to try to hit these goals. These are not going to be imaginary goals anymore. And, it, you know, we're seeing now cities saying, hey, we are actually going to eliminate single family home only zoning. They could be instead just doing what they've done previously of taking their housing goal and shoving it into the least politically powerful neighborhood. That's normally what has happened previously. Right. This cycle, we're saying, hey, we're going to allow housing in every neighborhood. And it's, I think it's just going to get bigger and louder and louder and louder as this year goes on. Yeah, I, I, I like what you're describing as like the kind of push and pull element, because as, as you said before, you know, some places are going to come along and say, like, we're allowing ADUs and that's going to be our fair housing uh, policy. And I think that the state is going to have something to say about that. But some, some localities are really going to go further. Boston has, you know, implemented the affirmatively furthering fair housing mandate into its code. And I have yet to see exactly what that looks like in a new development. I'm very curious to see how developers actually respond to like penciling out in AFFH goals. But I think in between this push and pull of recalcitrant cities, progressive cities, progressive states, recalcitrant states, you're going to find maybe the kind of median that will hopefully guide the federal policies. Now that will be really, really different than we've seen, you know, fair housing ever play out. I mean, for God, what is it? It's, you know, been half a century. George Romney tried to implement like a very kind of hardcore policy when the Fair Housing Act was first passed and like it failed immediately because states or cities and states would absolutely wouldn't accept it. Nixon backed off. And since then, we just haven't seen a ton of action. So this is going to be an exciting time to look at the policy since so many lo local governments are wrestling with it already. And if this bill is passed, the third bucket, so many more local governments are going to be incented to wrestle with it. This is where like, because we also have to get the purple places doing this as well. I mean, it, so long as America is sort of like segregated by ideology, having such a strong relationship to density, which is just a very interesting and weird phenomenon that is happening, that the like truly rural places, we do need farm worker housing, like they do need more housing, but it is sort of we're going to have to focus a bit on the highly productive cities and the highly productive suburbs and the like a lot of opportunity suburbs, but the like purple places argument and the like strong towns argument also that I think is going to need to be a bigger part of the conversation is this idea that you are fostering local economic stability and growth and you're going to have a, a stronger more vibrant community by allowing apartment buildings like that argument has to also be part of the mix because i don't think that 
you know, especially you're sort of taking your like third tier cities and your suburbs, like it's going to be a long time before they care about affirmatively furthering fair housing, I think. You know, I would say that there are some Republican allies for these efforts and in purple states and even, you know, more kind of reddish. What, what, what's a red purple color? Mauve. Mauve. Yeah, I was thinking mauve. <laughs> some, some more magenta leaning states. You know, Rob Portman, the Republican senator for Ohio, is a, is a co-sponsor of the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. That's the rehabbing sub-market housing bill. And also the, you know, co-author of the, the, what I call the Yimby Bucks program, the local housing policy grants. You know, he's a senator for Ohio. He is, understands struggling, you know, cities and rural areas alike where investment is, is, is a difficult problem. Todd Young from Indiana, he's uh, a co-sponsor of, I think, the Neighborhood Inve Homes Investment Act. He's also the author of the Yimby Act. And... Greatly named Bill. Greatly named Bill, right? You know, if... I, I don't want to get too far off the track that we're on, but, like, you know, if the filibuster were not in place, I actually think you would see a lot of these bills just pass. I mean, Todd Young and... Amy Klobuchar and and Ben Cardin can get together and come up with housing bills all day that benefit rural areas and legacy cities because those areas, while very, very different, have some of the same housing challenges when it comes to getting it, finding investment, when it comes to dealing with developers. And that's why they've written a lot of copacetic bills. It's just that the Senate doesn't really work that way when it comes to like passing meaningful legislation. <laughs> Or any way. I mean, or this anyway, is sort right. of like tragic is that like there is, there are these like, I mean, especially in Yimby, it's another reason to be so angry about the filibuster, but like, we actually have a consensus here around things that would really greatly improve so many people's lives. And yet the federal government is just like absent from the conversation, except in, I mean, now it's not, I, I should say it really feels like changes in the air and that like we might get all of these things these nudges across the it's not even going to be like systemic change it's going to be nudges that we might finally be able to pass should we look at bucket number four i mean we definitely we pause on bucket three because that's a that's a big bucket for 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 this particular clubhouse convention yes what's bucket number four bucket number four I'm so glad you asked. This is $40 billion for upgrades for existing affordable housing. This is where the real push comes to upgrade public housing. And there's, you know, 1.3 million units in the United States that, that, that really badly need just capital maintenance, capital upgrades. They're struggling with deferred maintenance. They're aging structures. New York City has a lot of this housing, but they're they're really in almost every, you know, jurisdiction in the United States. You'll find some public housing and you'll find that it's in bad shape. So this is $40 billion, mostly geared toward that purpose. Now, critics say that this doesn't really cover the need. The estimates that I think are reliable say that it's like $70 billion in deferred maintenance. So that's going to be an issue where I think you're going to see 
progressives really push, I think you're also going to see conservatives really push back because most of the public housing is located in big cities like New York. And that might strike them as as a kind of giveaway. You see this also, you know, in like centrist um, or moderate critics. My friend Matthew Iglesias is one of them. When it comes to the production of new public housing, you see progressives are very unified and wanting to push for more public housing. They have some bad news in this bill. It does not repeal the Faircloth Amendment, which is a flag in a 1999 or 1998 bill, a Clinton era bill that makes it illegal to build new federal housing, basically. So this infrastructure package does not include a repeal of that amendment. We're going to hear a lot from progressives about that and about the actual amount they're talking about since 40 is not quite 70. Yeah. And there's so, I mean, deferred maintenance is such a big problem. And it's interesting. So one of the ways that San Francisco and, and many cities, you know, privatized their public housing, they helped start up new nonprofits when there was this like push to get the public housing taken over by private nonprofits in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties. I mean, this, this effort to privatize our existing public housing has also meant that like, even when nonprofits took it over, there's not a lot of ongoing maintenance funding in general for affordable or public housing. They kind of like build it once and then they don't necessarily have the ability, well, ability, everyone has the ability. It's just money. You just have to throw money at it in an ongoing way or else these buildings crumble. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, a really important priority for progressives as a kind of jobs measure. In a, a lot of the, what I would call kind of messaging bills that progressives have put forward, like, let's see, the, the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act, which is a bill by, excuse me, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, and Representative Ilhan Homar's Homes for All Act. Both of those bills just hit really, really high targets for spending on public housing upgrades, new housing, social housing. And they framed it usually typically in terms of job creation, saying that if you produce kind of small cottage industries dedicated to upgrading existing housing to make it net zero energy, then what you build are our industries. The idea being like, if you take all of New York's NYCHA's public housing and, and, and upgrade it, then you've built a lot of contractors, companies, developers who can do this work and then can do that work for other buildings and for other housing. And that's certainly something that ties into the fifth bucket, which is... <laughs> go for it. <laughs> there you go. The fifth bucket of the affordable housing as infrastructure push in Biden's package is upgrading homes for weatherization and energy efficiency. So I think that there is kind of a lot of, of material where market urbanists and progressives can really come together here because when you rebuild public housing, when you rebuild low-income housing, when you do that, and keep people in place, 
then you create jobs, you create industry, and you don't displace some of the most vulnerable families in the country. And that seems like a really sensible goal for Democrats, since you can unite industry and socialists in in kind of common cause. And I think that's what that fifth bucket is. That, to me, is the kind of vaguest part of Biden's housing as infrastructure plan. So I'm looking forward to seeing more details. One thing that's kind of, I mean, this kind of like rehabbing the old buildings part of creating more stability, it's really good. It also means that sometimes you're looking at buildings that were built during times when people were really afraid of public housing and built buildings that are very low density and like rehabbing them means missing the opportunity to densify and add more units and that balance of how much do we, you know, I I, I don't know. It's like, it's really tragic every time San Francisco is like rehabbing a building that could be like three times the density and it would end up being cheaper to do like a two year relocation package for everybody who's living in the like currently crumbling down building and tear it down and rebuild at a higher density. But because people are so afraid of people not being able to come back to that building, you know, I I understand the fear. It's just such a missed opportunity a lot of the time. Laura, Laura, are you an architecture nerd? Not actually. I hate architecture. Every time architects talk, I like, very. I know it's terrible. The like, oh, the articulation and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I'm, I, I went to college. My college dorm was brutalist. I thought it was great. Oh, see, see, that qualifies you as an architecture nerd. If you can say, (laughs) if you say nice things about brutalism, you're inducted into the fraternity and sorority, whether you want to be or not. (laughs) Okay. I, I just say it, I ask because, you know, there's this big architecture prize, the Pritzker Prize, and this year it was awarded to this French pair, and Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal, forgive my French because I'm surely mispronouncing it badly, but they upgrade public housing in, in France in, you know, the, 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 like, stuff that a lot of people think is horrible, the big kind of high-rises in suburban areas. The stuff that people think is horrible, maybe for two reasons, you know, that these are largely kind of immigrant workforce housing and that they're often concrete or brutalist in design. And long neglected and underfunded. I mean, probably less so in France. I mean, that biggest problem here is that, you know, they were left to rot and then the next generation built things that were artificially lower density because they didn't want to freak people out. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that public housing, to the extent that it's built, been really built at all since the 70s, has been a kind of rejection, kind of a reactionary movement against 60s public housing. I really like these architects' work because, you know, by renovating these buildings in this super low-cost, high-drama way, they show that these buildings can still serve communities, can stand up as high design and be points of pride in any city. And I think that the goal on the left, as it's been described to me, is to make social housing that's attractive and that is like 
a, you know, that addresses those criticisms from the past. There's something that people can be proud of. And I think that to the extent that we're either privatizing public housing in place or renovating it in place and not taking advantage of the possibility for making it more dense, I think you're right. I think it is just that lingering allergy to 1960s projects and 1970s projects that is still influencing what is feasible. And so one thing that could be really amazing in New York, where so much of the public housing are, are really big project buildings, is if they can actually come up with a plan that, that works and looks good and can be a source of pride for communities and can really dispel those criticisms that we've been dealing with for so, so long. You can't dispel all of it because a lot of it is just about race and it's about class. And that is going to take more intensive work than housing grants can can really feasibly do. But to the extent that you can take the sting out of those criticisms, I think that there's real potential here in these rehab grants. What I'm really excited about, if, if we can get it working well, as people are talking more, and this is something that I think is not going to be implemented at the federal level for a long time, but, you know, laboratory of democracy in the States, there is a real, I mean, we had Alex Lee, I should have tagged him earlier, he was here, talking about the potential for social housing and the potential for cross-subsidized so that you're potentially in what would have been public housing in the idea of doing a well-formulated social housing that you've got higher income levels cross-subsidizing for lower income levels means that you've got a genuinely mixed income community and you get all of the benefits of like higher income people complaining when their building isn't as pretty as it could be, right? Like that's actually an asset to have financially secure people in your homeowners association for your social housing, lobbying for improvements that then can benefit everyone, you know, if these things are are done well. You know, Laura, that sounds like a great idea. And I think that addresses some of the criticism that some on the right or some centrists have when it comes to social housing. Certainly there are people on the left who really want to just go back to building kind of community sky rises. I think that's going to be a big political push. It's also really expensive because the land costs are so high. The housing costs are so high and most communities don't allow for dense building. So that might be a notion that could really really be feasible is to think of social housing as more of a a part of mixed income developments, like maybe just deep subsidies, deep federal subsidies for apartment buildings that serve a wide variety of income levels and can be very local, very regional or whatever, and attractive and and just just functionally operate. Yeah, that, that sounds like an approach that 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 could really work. It only works though. Like you can make those decisions at the state level and the federal level, but if you try to make it on the project by project level, like I've seen, you know, market rate projects that are also doing this cross subsidization stuff. Like the individual project is always going to get haters saying, "Here's my very elaborate reason why this project in particular is bad because I don't like housing near me." 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, all the things we're talking about work in tandem and really you wish that they had been implemented a long time ago. I mean, the fact is that while the Biden administration is trying to put spending on the table for 200 plus billion dollars in affordable housing, they need to get these local housing policy grants done yesterday. You need these plans in place so that you just don't waste a ton of money either in litigation or waste a ton of money on land costs. I think one really valid critique of social housing that you find is that so much of the money is going to get absorbed in just uh, purchasing the property. It costs a ton of money. Well, so this is one actually I think that's not valid because local governments own so much land that is being underutilized. If you actually ask local governments to think strategically about how many effing parking lots they own, we would get a lot of social housing. It's just that local governments don't pay a cost for owning too many effing parking lots. There's my rant to end on is too many parking lots. Yeah, too many parking lots. I I, I think that might need to be the sixth bucket of the housing (laughs) as infrastructure plan. But that might fall under the transportation side of infrastructure bill. I mean, this is the kind of elephant where we're looking at the trunk and that might be the tail. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, too many parking lots. I'll ask you a last question. In the transportation sections and other sections, is there anything that you think housing, I mean, housing advocacy and being very into trains often overlaps. I think there's a lot of excitement about there being less focus on cars in this is just like thrilling as a concept. Oh, that's right, Laura. I'm familiar with the numtots. I know my way around the the youths online. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited by the Amtrak map, which I'm more recently led to believe is bad. Um, As the next person, I think the local housing policy grants is probably the best opportunity in the Biden infrastructure plan that I've seen to actually address these things because transit and housing and health and environmental justice all have to kind of work in tandem. And this is real money for that kind of hard upfront work of planning. And I don't know that there is an analog in the, in the kind of transit side of, of this bill. There might be, I'm not as familiar with it. I just don't know. But I do know that local housing planning policy grants can be used to kind of talk about where you add more dense housing, where you add, make sure you're planning housing to go along with planning for transit. So it seems to be like that kind of meta good planning stuff is built into to the housing side. And Pete Buttigieg just keeps shitting on cars. It's beautiful. Yeah, he is definitely conducting a one-man war on cars. I, I, I haven't yet heard Secretary Marsha Fudge weigh on this. But no, Pete, not Mayor Pete anymore, Secretary Pete. Commuter Jej is out here on Bike Share in D.C. Beautiful. Amrit, do you have any questions you'd like to add? Can I ask a general EMB question instead of specific to infrastructure? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious, post-Berkeley upzoning and removing uh, single-family zoning, do you foresee that kind of spreading in the rest of the Bay Area, or what are your hopes and dreams for the rest of the Bay Area? 
Actually, this is great because we did, this can connect to the Biden stuff. I think no question, and especially there's kind of two reasons. One is that the entire narrative has changed around zoning and housing affordability. I think thanks to the MB movement planting the flag further and further out, like that sea changes here. We have also done a lot at the state level to create this, what has been a, a toothless process, the housing element process has been previously, the state says, here are your high housing goals, local cities implement changes in order to meet these goals. And it was a game where local governments then didn't actually try to meet their goals. And the state was like, well, we're just not gonna be mean to you about this. This time we have changed a lot of little laws so that the state is proposing much higher goals and the local cities are under a lot more pressure to actually try and reach those goals. And so those two forces are gonna cause, along with all of us having housing element watchdogs everywhere, you should volunteer to be a housing element watchdog. But those two forces mean that cities are really between a rock and a hard place. They've got really high housing goals. They know that they're supposed to be affirmatively furthering fair housing. They know that other cities are up zoning everywhere. And the, we're just gonna see this cascade of cities across California upzoning their entire city, whether that means fourplexes everywhere, whether that means duplexes, it, it is just going to be this cascade that everyone should be really excited for that hopefully Kristen then is writing about as it goes federal. Wait, can I ask a question? Absolutely. What is a housing element watchdog? Does that just mean like really active on next door? <laughs> so a housing element watchdog is a person who signed up at fairhousingelements.org and gets trained by Yimby Action. And, and we're working in a coalition with a couple other housing advocacy organizations. They, we do some training and it means you, cities are having, cities have these meetings. I don't know if you know, cities have these meetings where they are doing stakeholder engagement around, hey, we have to upzone, the city is making us, and we have to talk to our citizens about that and do this as a public process. A watchdog is someone from Team Yimby who is basically auditing that process. And they are saying out loud, hey guys, we have to actually try to meet our housing goals. And they're reporting back to Yimby HQ, here are the places where a local government is actively thwarting state law so that we can do things like send them letters, mean letters that say, hey, we'll sue you, or potentially sue them eventually, which will be very exciting. That's interesting. Is that an effort to kind of balance or overcome the bias that appears in local housing or lo local meetings really of any kind that Absolutely. are just overwhelmed by us old white guys? Absolutely. Also old white ladies, don't underestimate old white ladies. No, absolutely. And like the stakeholder engagement process that some cities do is like contact the people who have been mean to them for years and the loudest, right? The people they consider stakeholders are the people who have been loud for the longest. And we really do need to flip that script and get cities, whether they want to or not, engaging with more average citizens. And the Yimbis who are watchdogging are also keeping an eye out for those technical opportunities where 
we know what the law is, but because there's so many cities and towns, we also know that the state government is not going to be able to do as good a job auditing whether local governments are actually trying to follow the law or not. Like there's, there's right, right. there is also adding just kind of a general changing the tone so that they know that there are going to be citizens who are pro housing, but also there is a legal auditing that is taking place. Yeah, that sounds pretty exciting. Maybe I should raise that kind of idea for DC. We're in in the midst of finalizing some local comprehensive plan stuff, and it means a lot of local meetings, and you know how those can go. Absolutely. And there's also like, you know, we do all different kinds of levels of this, right? There's public comment training that's just about training you to feel more confident going to any one of these meetings and giving public comment. And then there's the watchdog program is definitely more intensive of teaching you a little bit about like what makes for a good housing element and what's a bad housing element. Kenneth, I'm going to call on you next. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of carrot and sticks in some of these ideas. And I'm wondering if there's any particular ones either of you think would be effective that we haven't talked about, something you want to kind of raise up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say in the kind of housing energy efficiency sphere, there are a lot of ideas that have been, you know, on the shelf for a while. For example, this was kind of like an early COVID era bill that didn't quite make it, but it still could very well apply as the economy recovers is a bill called the Hope for Homes Act, which was a plan to provide training and certification for contractors to do kind of broad scale energy efficiency upgrades. That was especially important and maybe could have made its way into the CARES Act, for example, as a way to put contractors to work when at a time when construction was really, really slow. Construction is picking up now. The The jobs report today was really, really good, for example. But there's still going to be some slack, I, I think, for, for some time to come, at least a year. And this could be the kind of thing where you're building the foundation for future industry, even when that future industry really can't happen. That's That sort of whole approach is baked into elements of the Biden housing infrastructure package that don't really kind of qualify as carrot and stick. There is a lot of stuff about certification that could go a long way into creating the kind of industry and the kind of contractors that we want to see actually fulfill the policies when we pass the policies. I mean, you can look at some of these things. They could just pass tomorrow, you know, forget July 4th, but you just pass this bill tomorrow and you would have a lot of contractors saying like, oh shit, how do we get on this sweet, energy efficient, electric bullet gravy <laughs> train? And and they just might not really know. And, and that when you get further and further away from cities and states that are trying to do this stuff locally, you get further and further away from a clear answer. But you really do want to do this stuff in Texas and Colorado and Florida or whatever. And and this is the kind of federal action where you can you put some money out for training and actually see long lasting results. I think we just need more. I mean, you know, I'm the production lady. Like. 
the most impactful thing we can do is densify, densify, densify and allow people to upgrade. And like, I, I do worry sometimes, and I don't think we're at this point yet, but we have had a lot of different ways of, of this kind of like emphasis on rehabbing and not creating really, really powerful programs that could help people upgrade by tearing down and building new we could be doing more to invest in tenant stability while we were tearing down some, you know, just like some things are poorly made and it, it should be just easier to make sure that you are protecting existing residents while upgrading their housing situation. And I think that we have just not done a very good job even in the cities with the strongest tenant protections, a lot of those tenant protections are really built around not changing the housing situation and not allowing that person to be able to upgrade. And I think that we just do need to recognize that it is not ethical to protect someone by allowing a building to crumble around them. And yes, there's some degree of upgrading of that, but you know, we built with lead for a generation. We built with asbestos for a generation. Like some of these buildings just need to go and we don't have great programs to absolutely ensure like everyone you know, rhetorically, there's a lot of like, you know, don't tear things down because people won't necessarily be able to come back. And we have to just make sure that people can come back and we need more systemic programs to make sure that we mean it when we say people are coming back. We have to, we have to create that trust in that system again. Laura, would you indulge me? Should I say some, some words about the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act? Go ahead. And actually, so we're over time, which is great. So now we can go as off topic as we like. (laughs) Okay. Well, before we start talking about like NFTs or something like that, we'll talk a little bit more about housing. And this is, this is, uh, what is this? This is bucket number two. So this is what I'm excited about because this wasn't really on my radar. I didn't expect this to be something that wound up in, in the bill, but this is a federal tax credit. It's a lot like the low income housing tax credit, Airhorn. And, and, and this is about buying and rehabbing homes in areas where the, the market just really won't do it. But a great feature of this bill is that the tax credit is only realized upon the sale. And the sale can only be to buyers who earn under 140% of the area median income. So you know, it's important to me, I think, that this is sponsored by Maryland Senator Ben Cardin and Ohio Senator Rob Portman. It's a bipartisan bill, but you're looking at something that could work just as well as in Baltimore, as in Cleveland, and in all the rural areas really in between. It's, it's you know, a, a tax credit made to get investors to come buy homes that are distressed. If you've, you've been to Baltimore or Cleveland, you know what I'm talking about. Upgrade those homes, renovate those homes, then resale them for, you know, may, maybe a small amount more than they would go for, you know, if they were just like a new new housing construction on the market, but a real upgrade for, for distressed neighborhoods. And there are components of this bill to keep people in, in place. So you might actually see like homeowners staying in homes that get upgraded or or in a lot of cases, uh, a lot of vacants, vacant housing that is 
renovated and remodeled, put on the market at a, a low cost that's affordable for people who actually live in the neighborhood. It's not the only approach, I think, to the, the kind of crisis of hyper vacancy. And I am curious to see if other approaches do make it into Biden's eventual plans here. But I think it could be something powerful to speak to the thing that you were just talking about, about displacement and making sure that the federal measures we introduce don't actually end up hurting people locally on the ground. So I'm going to let it end there. But thank you so much, Kristen, for chatting with us. This was really great. Thanks for everybody who listened in. If you have other ideas for clubhouse rooms that we should do, email hello at yimbyaction.org. Become a member at yimbyaction.org slash join. We are going to start doing more regular clubhouse materials. So this should be fun if you have other ideas. And Kristen, this was really informative. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, this was so fun. This is my first clubhouse and <laughs> I, I did it. And I'm thankful that you helped me to do this because otherwise I might've been too scared. Might've been too scared. <laughs> it's just like being on a really awkward radio show. It's way better than being on an awkward radio show. I promise you. <laughs> All right. Talk to everybody soon. Have a good night. Good night. today. I want to emphasize that this is a hard time for nonprofits. Yimby Action is continuing to advocate for the policy solutions we need, whether that's emergency funding for housing for those who need it most, or a pro-housing legislative package that will steer us towards an equitable recovery. We're producing great events, important discussions, and helping local advocates push policies of inclusion and housing for all. And if you believe this work is important and valuable, I want to really urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.